0: This is where we remember truth, to make the world a better place, one person at a time. I'm Claire Lotier, Inspirational Speaker, Teacher of the Technology of Transformation, and a Certified Life Mastery Consultant and Spiritual Coach. Welcome to the Grace Space. For several years, as I went through the awakening process with my teacher and his school, I basically commuted back and forth between Canada and France. I was in France three or four times a year for several weeks at a time sometimes longer. I found I wanted at least a week before a training module to get over jet lag and just sort of psychologically and physically prepare myself and then at least a week after to recover (laughs) and process something before going home. I also wanted to spend time with my family and to explore. So often I would go for a month at a time, sometimes longer. And sometimes I was wanting to take advantage of other experiences at the ashram that were available at different times of the year. So this meant that I was away from home a lot. As you can imagine, it wasn't easy for my husband and I was basically developing a life apart from him while he stayed at home and worked. I don't think it would have been easy for anyone to understand what I was going through who wasn't going through it themselves, but we really were living in different worlds. It's a testament to his lovingness and patience that he was willing to let me go so far away from him. Our relationship entered the unknown along with me. And when I was at home, he had to live with whatever I was living with, including my early mornings, various cleansing diets that came and went, my endless tears and brooding, and my unreachability. I was inaccessible, like an octopus escaping behind murky clouds of ink, but especially inaccessible to myself. To the world, though, I was living my dream on a journey of self-discovery, and that was also true they were both true there were like two simultaneous realities one where i felt amazing and one where i felt terrible (laughs) there were always rays of light shining through and i focused on those especially in my projection to the world i had faith and optimism that i would get there wherever there was and end up as the best version of myself whatever that was I knew that I was on my way somewhere, but preoccupied as I was by the day to day of transformation, there was no projection into the future as what this was all leading to. When we first moved to our place in France a couple years ago, we rolled back the cover on the pool for the first time in years and it was a horror show. The walls and the bottom were covered in a thick layer of mud, leaves, algae, dead bugs, frogs, you name it. When you first start to clean a pool that's been left alone for ages, even covered, you have to deal with what's in there. The water starts out clear enough to see what's sitting down at the bottom, because it's been undisturbed. But the minute you get a brush and a net and start scooping out the muck, it clouds up and you can't see anything anymore. Well, that was me. I was trying to clean my pool. But everything was stirred up and I couldn't see or make sense of anything. I was lost in my own swampiness. It came to my attention in those first couple years that someone in our extended French family saw me as selfish. Selfish. The idea of leaving my life, my husband, to come to France to do yoga purely for personal growth, was shocking as a concept, and I guess branded me in some eyes as typically American. (laughs) It had never occurred to me that that could be experienced as threatening, and that bringing that energy into the family was not universally accepted. I realized that my being around so much, so much more, was changing things. And although the influence was welcomed and the reflection I got from my cousins was that my presence was appreciated and valued, I became aware of another dynamic within the family in one quarter that included tension and resistance. And I had to consider that perhaps what I was doing was selfish. I certainly allowed myself the luxury to do something that many people would not do and I was supported in it. And where was it all going? And what was it all for, especially when it seemed that privately things were getting worse for me on the emotional level rather than better. So I doubted myself. I questioned my motivations, my intentions, but I kept coming back to my heart. I figured that love would heal me of my selfishness. However, it was manifesting or perceived. And even if that selfishness was projected on me by someone else, in other words, if they see me that way and I'm not that way, I still take responsibility that because of me, they see me that way. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I still had to own the reflection. Even if the perception of selfishness was the other person's projection, the fact that I was aware of it meant that somewhere it belonged to me and it was my responsibility to heal that within myself so that's the law of reflection and it states that reality is a mirror reality the reality that you experience that I experience is a mirror whatever you see in the mirror is generated by you at some level that's not something we always want to own up to We think how could i how could i be generating this situation that i hate or that i don't that i don't want to be stuck in or that is tormenting me or whatever well we have to look deeper it's not consciously it's subconsciously we have subconscious patterns and programs we're not aware of them and they drive behavior and call forth people, events, and circumstances in accordance with our karmic propensities, our unfinished business. So there's no use complaining about anything or feeling sorry for ourselves. We brought it, whatever it is, and it's not against us, it's for us. So if someone says she's selfish even if it's the other person's projection, even if it's their own selfishness projected outward or their resentment of another person's freedom, it doesn't matter. If it enters into my reality and I'm aware of it, it is an object within my own consciousness and therefore it's for me to dissolve. The mirror is showing me something that's mine and I get to own it. If I own it, it doesn't have any power over me. If I disown it and deny it, it does have power because <laughs> then you're avoiding it. You feel subconsciously guilty, you know, and you, you, you feel like you have something to defend against. So I'm telling you this now. I'm pretty sure I denied and defended against that reflection at the time. I thought, what's their problem? <laughs> right? But then the unconscious guilt from the denial of the reflection motivated me to dig deep for more love to save me from myself. Motivated by the sting of this person's disapproval of me, in every interaction with my family, I just did my best to open my heart. Okay, if I am selfish, then let me practice behaviors that will wear that selfishness away, that will wear it down and dissolve it. I did everything I could to serve them. My job became the dishes. My aunt was often cooking for at least a dozen people without batting an eye when we'd all be together in the summer, sometimes more, you know. sometimes we'd have like 17, 18, 19 people and she would just cook. <laughs> so I made it my devotion to pitch in wherever possible, usually ended up with the dishes. My cousin Katun would wink at me and say, save a time as I headed off to the kitchen. Seva is a Sanskrit term for selfless service. And we always had Seva tasks at the ashram, including dishwashing. In fact, I was captain of the dishwashing team a couple of times. And my cousins were becoming familiar with the yogic terminology as I shared my experiences with them after my training weekend. So even today, as I head off to the kitchen after a meal, she'll say to me, save a time. (laughs) I even told my family that I loved them which elicited chuckles and hugs. Even though they're very warm people, and I characterize them as affectionate and loving, and they are, they don't throw the words, I love you, around. Again, I felt like the American, hugging them as I left and telling them, thank you, I love you. I could see they were partly embarrassed, (laughs) but they partly loved it too. During a family gathering once, when we had our glasses raised in a toast, one of my cousins toasted me saying to Claire, who has so much love in her heart that it's overflowing into the whole family and bringing us all together again. One summer, in between two training modules, I was staying in our family seat of Montpellier, a large, vibrant university town by the Mediterranean, Montpellier is in the region where my ancestors on my father's side were from hundreds of years ago it's where my father went to medical school it's where my parents met it's where my aunt and uncle and my grandparents came back to after Algeria and my aunt is still there in the same house that I've been going to since 1985 just on the outskirts of the city I love Montpellier it has a sunniness a luminousness to it it's cheerful. (laughs) There's a lot of light-colored stone everywhere, and even the twisty-turny medieval streets of the Écusson, the oldest part of the city, don't seem dark and dank, as they often do in old French towns. Montpellier is young by European standards. It's only been around since about the year 800. It's charming and lively with tons of restaurants and outdoor terraces and museums and markets, squares and fountains and beautiful architecture. You can also get to the Mediterranean in about 30 minutes by tramway for almost nothing and spend a few hours at the beach. So I had decided to spend a chunk of time there because actually I was auditioning different areas of France as possible places to live. I dreamed of having a -a pied-de-terre, somewhere to put my stuff, because of course I was accumulating stuff the more time I spent in France. That summer I had signed up for a TEFL course in Montpellier to learn how to teach English as a second language. In the back of my mind, I guess I felt a need to prepare for a different kind of life. I also became a certified translator in Canada during this same period. I was intensely working on improving my French. I had no plan, but I knew I needed to be open to new possibilities in life. So it was July in Montpellier, and that means it's hot. I remember training into the city and getting off the train, being hit by a wall of heat, which intensified the acrid smell of the train station. I lugged my unwieldy suitcase over the uneven sidewalks and the cobblestones of the medieval streets looking for the Airbnb I had rented for a month, which I discovered was a fifth floor walk up quite the challenge to me with my suitcase. By the time I got all the way up, I was positively in a lather of dripping sweat. I opened the door to a darling little place though which always reminded me of a boat. It was a top floor garret with squeaky floors and slanty walls and skylights you could open with a rope, looking out over the rooftops, small but efficient with everything in its place just like a boat, and a tiny separate bedroom and a shower that opened onto the kitchen. (laughs) There was no air conditioning and only one fan which I would turn on me wherever I was. The cicadas were a constant high-pitched hum, like high-tension electrical wires, even in the city. And I would hear them at night, having thrown off all the sheets and lying there in my birthday suit, trying to find some relief from the constant heat. One sweltering afternoon, after a full day of TEFL class, I was heading back to my place and passed a storefront with a sign saying, Centre Acteur, literally, Actors Center. And I thought, huh, wonder what that's all about. Could it be like the French equivalent of Actors' Equity, the Actors' Union in North America? I imagined a bunch of French thespians in there, smoking and drinking tiny cups of coffee with dog eared scripts of Moliere and Racine, or mimes, or serious students of surrealism in the avant garde putting up notices for film auditions. My curiosity was piqued, so I tried the door, but it was locked. Every day thereafter, I passed the place and wondered about it. Finally, one day when I was walking by, I saw movement inside. So I crossed the street and pushed the door open. It was a tiny office with one guy inside. So I kind of stumbled in on him and awkwardly introduced myself and asked if this was a center for actors because I'm an actor and I'd love to meet other actors in the area. He looked at me for a second, utterly confused and I knew I'd gotten it wrong, (laughs) though I wasn't sure how. His face broke into a lopsided grin, and he said, not unkindly, no, this is the center for those who've lost their way and want to become the actors of their own lives. That was when I noticed the posters on the walls with meeting days for support groups and ads for rehab programs and job postings and social assistance. This was an example of subtlety of language terms that I hadn't yet grasped. The the word actor, (acteur) in French, while it also means actor in the sense that I know, is used much more commonly to mean one who's doing something, who acts and plays a role in a situation or environment, socially or politically, who has an effect on something. So I realized I hadn't understood the subtlety of the use of the term, and I'd projected onto it its primary meaning for me. Oh, I said, backing away, I'm so sorry, I, I misunderstood my mistake. I felt vaguely embarrassed and somehow trivially self-absorbed. I could never walk by the place again without a slight feeling of discomfort. Only later did I trace the source of the discomfort to the fact that I had disowned and dismissed the reflection I was being offered at that moment. The reality was reflecting the need to transcend the old role of actor as I had known it, as I had lived it, and to embrace a a new definition that had been offered me by this man, to be the actor of my own life, to admit that I had lost my way and to empower myself. Now, of course, you would think that everything that had led me to that moment had already been an act of empowerment that choosing to walk another path and make spiritual growth the priority and and walk away from everything that I had created up until that point was an act of empowerment and it was at the time. It was a deciding act of courage a declaration that I was ready to be open to doing things a different way to not know and to surrender to that not knowing. But ironically, once you declare your readiness to the universe, all your karma comes up for processing. It isn't peaceful. In the intervening years, the original spark that had propelled me so powerfully at the beginning had given way to the gravitational pull of old crystallized habits of consciousness, which were the ones that I was attempting to transcend. You floated in the first year by resonance of the group, my teacher had told me once. But now you need to develop the spiritual power from within yourself. And you don't feel your own divinity. You don't believe it. You don't have both feet in the platter, he said, (laughs) directly translating a French expression. You need to say, I am the source. I am the source. I remember how inadequate I felt to what he was speaking of at the time. I am the source. What does that even mean? It was just an intellectual concept. It's true, at the time, I was using my teacher, the school, and my fellow yogis like life support. It was like I couldn't live without them. I couldn't sustain myself without that continual contact. I had again projected the source of that early inspiration, what it actually originated from my own connection to source, onto my teacher and the training itself. This is very typical, It's it happens. In this period of being lost in the waters of feeling, muddied and confused and full of self-doubt, it's what we call Shaktipat also, this period of doubt, I was reliving the same patterns of helplessness and victimhood that had always been there. Of course, this is how we learn to recognize patterns because they come back under totally different circumstances. So clearly they're not caused by circumstances, they're triggered by circumstances, and they're already there. They're running things under the surface. It wasn't until a couple years later that I recounted that story about the centre acteur to my teacher and fully realized its significance. Amazing! He slapped his leg for emphasis. What a message for you, and you totally missed the point. (laughs) I flinched internally at his characteristic candor and my unconsciousness, but at least I finally got it. When I had backed away out of the tracteur, somewhat sheepishly, I had put a wall of separation between myself and those people, the ones who would go there, who were supposed to be there, in quotes. I couldn't see that I was every bit as much in recovery as any of the people who would be at the Centracteur, that I was every bit as much in need of totally rebuilding myself and my life. There was still a denial of the reflection, the mirror of reality, which was showing me my own addictions, even if they didn't take the form of alcohol and drugs. The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or Al-Anon or any of the other 12-step programs in existence, those 12 steps are spiritual principles of surrender. And it's about learning to live by spiritual principles of surrender. They're about humility, forgiveness, gratitude, and love. The four pillars that I've shared a lot about already this season. These are the alchemical keys to freedom from any kind of dependency or attachment or addiction. It's taken me a long time to understand that we are all addicted to the ego. Specifically, the pleasure that the ego gets from juicing our emotional energy. That's the ultimate addiction. There's a secret satisfaction in suffering. And that's what keeps it alive. It's the thing we continually go back to for a sense of normality in life, for our references, the familiar feeling of being me, with all my fears and resentments, wounds, ambitions and desires. The ego gives us our sense of self, of identity, and we believe that is what we are. We identify with all the identifiers. I'm this person with these thoughts and feelings, with this name, this age, this gender, this skin color, this educational level, this job, this family, this problem, this emotional issue, this disease, this ancestral history. These personal preferences, these opinions, these beliefs. I am a separate, independent, personal I that is causing something out there. We are strongly attached to this personal identity and its story, its worries and fears, its hopes and expectations. And when the ego takes us over through identification, we take the possessing entity for who we are and we defend it to the death. And yet this is the biggest fallacy we all accept unquestioningly that there can be an I separate from the infinite field of power, an autonomous little God entity that's in charge and making things happen and without which nothing would happen. This is the narcissistic core of the ego. And it's so close to us. We're so identified with it that we aren't even aware that it's operating. We're so accustomed to perceiving through it that we don't even see our own distortions at first. Spiritual work is the process of undoing the very moorings of this personal sense of self. And it does feel at times like you've set yourself adrift and you don't know who you are anymore. Spiritual work is threatening to your sense of self and the way you've always experienced life. And if you aren't feeling that way, then you're not really doing the work. Even if you are unhappy in your life, most people prefer the devil they know. (laughs) And when we feel stirrings in the murky depths, we'll do anything to keep that stuff from destabilizing the life we've set up to defend against it. I've used many things to avoid knowing what was really going on with me. That's what it is to be a user, whether you're using a substance or food or another person or chaos and drama to distract yourself from simply being present to whatever's coming up for you. We are all users in that sense, addicted to emotional juice of distraction, excitement, the next shiny object that keeps the ego alive and along with it, the false self so that we don't have to face the abyss. The abyss is death, not physical death, necessarily. The death of the personal self. We fear that even more than physical death. And spiritual work leads you to the edge of the abyss. So you can finally die to what you thought you were and be reborn as what you really are. It happens by degrees, if you have the courage. Until then, we live like ravenous werewolves and substitute excitement, chaos, drama, emotionalizing, sentimentalizing, glamorizing, and consuming for actual aliveness. We search constantly for gain, for the next experience to eat up, to reinforce the false sense of self because at the core remember the basic program is survival the ego literally feels like if it doesn't get what it's hankering for whether it's the next job or that person or that status symbol or that goal even a spiritual goal <laughs> which is an oxymoron it's going to die that's what it feels it, it feels like if it doesn't respond to fill up that craving, it will die. That's because the program is survival. And it had to originally go out and consume and get stuff outside itself because it had no self-sustaining energy. So it's very, very seductive. When you've never known anything else, you have to be half crazy to give up everything you've known for the abyss of the unknown. And there are no guarantees. You need tremendous courage and valor to walk straight ahead into the thing you're most afraid of. And it's not a definable fear. It's not like you're like, you can see the abyss ahead of you. and You're like, I don't want to walk into the abyss. No, you just, there's a vague sense of threat, a vague sense of unease and then we just avoid right we, we go into avoidance we go into resistance and sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it it's such a habit it's that it's that same impulse of you know when uh, which i've spoken of before when you're falling asleep and suddenly you, you jerk yourself awake right it's like this something that comes up that's like no don't go there <laughs> we had a wonderful teacher when I was at the Stratford Festival, uh, who still comes there and uh, uh, would do workshops in conscious movement. And uh, if you would be uh, on the floor breathing and becoming more and more present, um, he would uh, he would sometimes say to you, oh, you got close to something there. (laughs) And it was that moment where you were opening up to something and you didn't know what it was. And then suddenly there was a contraction. Like you were opening up and then suddenly you would close again. And it was totally involuntary and it was nonverbal. It happened at a level um, that was almost instinctual, right? And when he would notice that, he'd notice that happening, he would point it out and say, you got close to something there. Everything's all right. Nothing's wrong. (laughs) And later I came to realize that it was that moment he was pointing to, that moment where the ego, the instinctual Uh, defense, uh, subconscious defense of the ego arises and pulls you back from opening to the unknown. You don't know what you're unleashing. When you say yes to the spiritual path. You don't know what's coming up for resolution and how facing it may alter the landscape of your little life. Our history is so vast, unthinkably, incalculably vast, we are eternal. (laughs) This is not our first rodeo. This little chapter of this little life on this little planet is but one of who knows, countless existences that we no longer remember. There are programs and patterns that have been operating in our depths for many many lifetimes for us individually and for our family and our ancestors. So you come to heal yourself, heal this little portion of karma, and your lineage of all the unspoken things, the taboos, the secrets and lies, the swept under the rug, the rejected and unaccepted, the unacknowledged and unfulfilled, All the things that have festered unexpressed and become disease and death for us time and time again. Is it selfish to expose that stuff to the light? To be the one who says, yes, I'm willing to look at that instead of no, I don't want to know about it. Is it selfish to be that which you are authentically and unadorned? Whatever step we're taking spiritually is going to make some waves inwardly and probably outwardly too, because we can't do anything within ourselves without affecting the collective. We are all connected. Not everyone will thank you for the work that you do on yourself. (laughs) That's certain. We don't know what strange fish live in the bottom of our ocean, in the freezing cold pitch darkness under excruciating pressure. What are we holding within that has never seen the light of day? I'm not saying this to scare you. It's a massive opportunity you have in front of you if you're willing to say yes to your own abyss. It's the opportunity to own, to encompass, to embrace, to accept all of those strange fish. Giant, anemone-sucking sea spiders, flesh-eating crustaceans, zombie worms, carnivorous sponges. Their cold, soulless, staring eyes and their sharp, scary teeth. Some of them are magically ephemeral with their own light sources in the darkest parts of the ocean floor, but they have all of them, their genius. They are of the creator too. Are you willing? Do you have the courage to own them so that they don't own you? Can you be the space? That contains them? Can you say, so what? It's an open question for me too. But we're entering an age of revelation, where individually and as a collective, everything is coming to light. The idea that we can have any secrets is laughable from the spiritual perspective. Everyone knows subconsciously when they're not being dealt with honestly. Everything is known to the infinite field of consciousness. And karma, to quote David Hawkins, is nothing but accepting the inevitability of responsibility and being answerable for one's decisions and actions. We need tremendous compassion toward ourselves to bring everything that is twisted and distorted to to the light to resolve the unresolved in us to process the portion of karma that we're working on this time around is a matter of bringing everything into the field of unconditional love unconditional acceptance unconditional forgiveness of what i am what you are what the world is this is the space of grace where healing occurs, and nothing can stand against it forever. Unconditional love is not a personal emotion, but an impersonal state of being, a very high frequency of energy that can dissolve anything negative, any negative emotion or crystallized experience that we have in consciousness. There's a sort of gallows humor joke that if someone who's been coming to meetings of a 12-step group disappears for a while, falls off the wagon, robs a bank, sets fire to a building, drives their car into a crowd of people, and then comes back, the only response will be, Hey there, Jim. Good to see you again. Glad you're back. That's the field of unconditional love. It isn't that there aren't consequences for our actions on the level of fact. Of course, there are. But you will always be, welcomed back. It's the story of the prodigal child too. No matter what we've done, how far astray we've gone, when we return sincerely, although we're broke and broken, battered and bruised, hungover and full of despair, we are welcomed back with open arms. When we have the blessing to encounter that field of unconditional love, whether it's through a teacher, or a 12-step group or some other kind of truly spiritual fellowship or the experience that we have with our guides and angels, we begin to dissolve like an ice cube melting in water. We were the water all along, just at a different frequency and density. And then we begin to hold that frequency ourselves for anyone who needs it. On the practical side, I recommend making a list of all the things you think disqualify you from receiving unconditional love. Write down every terrible thing anyone has ever said about you, what you've denied, what you were afraid was true, and what you know to be true. Write down every negative thing you've ever said about yourself, and all your own dark thoughts, words, and deeds. Get all those strange fish down on paper. Then, choose to own all of it. Let it be there. Yes, I am this way. Yes, I'm selfish. So, be the field of unconditional love and acceptance for yourself. And welcome yourself back into the fold. Own it. And it will not own you anymore. I'll see you next time. Meanwhile, walk in grace. Thank you for joining me in the grace space, where you're always in the right place. If you love this podcast, I invite you to subscribe to it and submit a review if you feel called to do so. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter right here. I look forward to spending this time with you again next week. Meanwhile, I send you love and blessings. Bye for now.